Hi everyone, welcome to Wired to be Weird, the podcast that tries to tear down the paywall that separates you from the basic science research that's being published today, some of which your tax dollars supported. My name is Ian McLaughlin, and I'm a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania. And my name is Bo, and I already have my PhD, so I'm glad that that nightmare period for me is already over. <laughs> yeah, and I'm still in the thick of that nightmare. Uh, in fact, I have a big presentation coming up later on this week, so uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, Bo has to go out of town in like an hour. So we can only discuss basically an intro to cannabis today, and we'll follow up with a deeper dive into the pharmacology of cannabis, as well as some specific studies of its potential medicinal applications next time. So Ian, there's no question that weed is one of the most frequently brought up topics on the live streams that you've been doing on Periscope. Yeah, it's clearly an important topic for a lot of people, and I mean, it makes sense given how rapidly its legality has been changing recently. Right, so it's now legal for medical use in some states, and then legal for just fun in a handful of states, right? Yeah, pretty much. So Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, Washington State, and Washington DC have legalized recreational, as, w as well as medical, cannabis for use in adults. And DC is a little strange there because uh, evidently it's still illegal to buy. Uh, but then 20 states have legalized solely medicinal cannabis, right? So these are Arizona, California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Illinois, uh, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont. <laughs> and so some of these states appear to have uh, ballot initiatives for recreational use, like on top of their, their uh, medicinal uh, status that exists today. And these are Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, and Nevada. Okay, so maybe we should clarify that we are not lawyers. And <laughs> if you are concerned with whether or not you can uh, use cannabis in your state, uh, please consult an actual <laughs> attorney rather. Don't take our word for yeah, it, right. in other words. Wired to be weird will not stand up in court. <laughs> <laughs> because we are not the legal experts. Your Honor, I heard it on a podcast. <laughs> Pretty sure. <laughs> But one thing we do know is that the federal government itself hasn't changed legalization. It's only been the state so far. Yeah, that's exactly right. So not even medicinal cannabis, right? That's right. And advocates, uh, they tend to emphasize the issue during presidential elections in particular. And I know the Clinton campaign has suggested classifying cannabis as a Schedule II drug, which implies that there are some medicinal benefits of cannabis, right? That's like what Schedule II implies. And right now, it's classified as Schedule I, which puts it in a category with like heroin, um, mescaline, and LSD. And so this is a category of drugs for which no medical benefits are recognized by the DEA and the FDA. And those are two of our government's like, drug enforcement and regulation agencies. The DEA and FDA also consider these drugs as having a high potential for abuse and argue that there is no accepted safety for use of the drug under like medical supervision. And because they're considered so dangerous, um, physicians are unable to write prescriptions for these drugs, according to the DEA. And what do you think reclassification as a Schedule II would do? Well, so that's a category of drugs that still have a high abuse potential and can lead to dependence, uh, but, but do have some recognizable medical application. So are these things like Vicodin and Xanax? That's right, exactly. So, you know, oxycodone, amphetamine, and even fentanyl, by the way, which is actually a pretty scary molecule. And uh, I, I was just reading about fentanyl recently, and uh, it, it was used in gas form by the Russian Spetsnaz, and you'll have to forgive me if I'm mispronouncing Spetsnaz. And so that is sort of like the Russian military special forces. 
And so they used uh, a gas form of fentanyl with the intention to just knock people out in a hostage situation. But unfortunately, because fentanyl is so hyperpotent, it's an opioid similar to, to heroin, for example, but even more potent. They ended up killing over 100 people with it. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty big oops. They ended up killing like over 100 hostages. It's pretty tragic. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so clearly the main concern with scheduling isn't necessarily how easily the molecule can kill you, right? Fentanyl is also a very effective painkiller for people experiencing very severe pain, either like during surgery or for cancer-associated pain, or for people who have been on strong opioids, you know, for the treatment of chronic pain, but need something even stronger for times when their chronic pain flares up significantly. You know, we call that breakthrough pain. So I've never heard of cannabis gas killing people. <laughs> right, yeah, cannabis, yeah, exactly. So, so the legislation debate lives in this dimension of irrationality and sociology and just like sort of general messiness. Right? And this isn't only due to the reefer madness we've inherited from the 30s, right? That was like this old movie done in the 30s that portrayed cannabis as like turning people into crazy people, right? And I think, frankly, I think it, reefer madness is ripe for like a low budget parody zombie movie. But anyways, also it's because the advocates will zealously argue against any studies that identify undesirable health consequences of smoking weed. And like I've encountered this myself when I try and discuss some of the negative, some of the potential negative effects of cannabis. People in the live stream will just vehemently disagree no matter what. Um, and I'm not even, you know, I'm not even very stubbornly arguing. I'm just identifying studies, you know. But anyways, that's that whole debate isn't quite what we concern ourselves with here. Okay, so let's get back to the point of this podcast here. And why don't we talk a little bit more about the actual published research about cannabis? Yeah. Let's do that. But, but it turns out that that sounds a lot easier than it actually is. Um, the reality of cannabis is that it has such a huge range of effects due to the pharmacology of the various molecules in cannabis, THC, CBD, right? And so there's a lot to talk about there. There's also a fair argument that research has tended to be biased towards only identifying negative consequences of use, right? Usually those are the projects that get funded. So there's definitely a disproportionate emphasis on why you should avoid smoking weed, right? But there have been some studies that are trying to quantify just how helpful it is as well. However, if I have one major criticism of the research, at least I've seen, uh, that is trying to identify medicinal use uh, or, or examples um, for medical use, is that these studies tend to generate what one might call like mediocre quality data. And in fact, a Cochrane uh, review characterized like the only substantial studies of the use of can cannabinoids to treat fibromyalgia as generating like straight up low quality data. Okay, and what is a Cochrane review? Oh, right, yeah. So it's, it's a huge group of scientists and clinicians who will review all of the research for a given topic or question and try to extract a consensus perspective so clinicians can be armed with sort of what is science saying about X, Y, and Z today. Okay, so the Cochrane review uh, said that the data found for cannabis treatment of fibromyalgia was low quality. Is that true for other studies outside of fibromyalgia as well? Yeah, so that's kind of a broad problem with, with cannabis research. And, and so for the fibromyalgia, they actually couldn't find any credible herbal treatment, herbal cannabis treatment for fibromyalgia. It was all synthetic cannabinoids. And there was only two studies that met their standard, and even still, these studies generated low quality data. And by low quality, what that means is that you know, the, the study participant groups don't accurately reflect the population or there are confounding variables like they all also drank alcohol or they all also were prescribed with different types of, you know, additional medications. And so you can't control for everything. You're not just 
identifying the effects of cannabis or cannabinoids alone, right? And so, you know, you can go from high, high quality data where every study participant is only being treated with that synthetic cannabinoid. Then you can be sure that any changes in behavior or any changes in the progression of the disease are due to that treatment. But the reality is that it can be very difficult when it comes to cannabis research in this respect. And fundamentally, it boils down to the fact that it can just be really hard to tease apart correlation and causation, right? Because there are so frequently so many confounding factors that makes, it, makes identifying benefits and problems with cannabis use super hard. For example, due to its legal status, finding samples of the population that smoke weed regularly can be pretty challenging, believe it or not, particularly if you're trying to control for the use of other drugs. Right? So its legal status has made it so that people have been sometimes unwilling to admit their use. And so finding a large sample of people who only smoke weed right, and don't drink or do other drugs regularly has been challenging. And this becomes a major problem when you're trying to nail down the long-term consequences of regularly smoking weed and weed alone. Also, when trying to identify the relationship between cannabis and a condition like schizophrenia, parsing apart correlation from causation is extremely challenging. Meaning that it's hard to tell if people are developing schizophrenia because of the fact they smoke weed, or if they smoked weed because they had schizophrenia, or if they just happened to smoke weed and happened to have schizophrenia at the same time. That's exactly right. And let's say there is a significant correlation between weed smoking and schizophrenia, right? it's still difficult to figure out if that correlation indicates that people who ultimately develop schizophrenia are just more likely to enjoy cannabis, right? Or if it's even perhaps, it might help them cope with the symptoms of schizophrenia as some data suggests nicotine does. Or it could be because people with schizophrenia just happen to live in close proximity to cannabis dealers, right? so their access to it is much easier. You know, that actually is a, a major point of research, you know, because it's like, Okay, imagine you have debilitating schizophrenia, right? Where you can barely communicate with people, you know? Um, perhaps you have the neuronal circuitry that would maybe draw you to use cannabis more, right? Maybe you would enjoy it if you could just get it, but the problem is that you cannot communicate with people, you know? You freak people out, dealers don't trust you, you're, you know, shifty. Um, and so all this to say that if you were to find a correlation that, that would suggest that people with schizophrenia rarely ever do a certain drug, right? Does that correlation mean that it's the schizophrenia, it is because they have schizophrenia and it's the symptoms of schizophrenia, uh, the, the, the actual circuitry involved in schizophrenia that is making you hate this other drug like heroin? Or is it because, because you have schizophrenia, it's just impossible for you to navigate society to actually get an illegal drug? Do you know what I mean? Or if you take a microeconomics view of it, maybe somehow people with schizophrenia are getting a lower price or a higher price uh, for yeah. certain drugs, and therefore the demand is higher. Oh, uh, yeah, like, like a sympathy sale. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, who does? Okay, so the point is there are many confounding factors, like you said, that really prevents us from saying X causes Y exactly. or vice versa. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and until there is enough research that goes on to identify the mechanisms, the actual biochemical mechanisms of cannabis either causing or not causing schizophrenia, we cannot say with very much certainty that it does or doesn't cause schizophrenia, right? It's all statistics, it's all correlation. So, and there were, so for example, there were two broad studies done in New Zealand, one of 1,300 kids born in 1977, okay? And they found that daily pot smokers were 50% more likely to have psychotic symptoms than non-users and they were at a greater risk of not finishing school. The other study was of uh, 1,000 people, 
uh, from birth to the age of 38 that found that persistent weed use, particularly if started young, correlated with steeper IQ declines later in life and with memory problems and reasoning difficulties. And then there was a Swedish study of 50,000 people between the ages of 18 and 20. And they found that heavy users are three times more likely to develop schizophrenia than those who didn't smoke. And I mean, that's a pretty alarming headline, right? Yeah, I mean, three times more likely to develop schizophrenia is a pretty good argument against using. Right, but the data actually showed, when you look more closely, that though the increased risk was statistically significant, the overall risk was still rather low. Just 1.4% of men who said they'd ever smoked weed ever developed schizophrenia. And that's compared to 0.6% of those who say they'd never smoked weed developing schizophrenia. And that's essentially less than a 1% difference. Exactly. But I am sure, and I haven't looked, but I am sure that there are headlines that said you are three times more likely to develop schizophrenia, right? And it's that kind of poor research translation that causes this debate to be so fraught. Okay, so I'm painting this picture uh, of how difficult it is to coordinate a huge study that follows a person uh, or many people from birth to middle adulthood, which is a long time, uh, to get enough of those people who smoke weed and only weed regularly, who will admit to it, uh, who will keep in contact with the researchers, and who are of the demographics to somehow reflect the broader uh, country or world in general. That's exactly right. It's like a nightmare project. There are so many tangents on this topic that we could dance down right now. Like the fact that literally zero graduate PhD students or postdoctoral fellows would ever entertain the notion that they'd participate in running this project until like the 40th year, right? So you'll have to find a physician or, or physician scientists uh, with established careers already and steady grant funding to run this study. I mean, it'd be, it would be a total nightmare. Right, so just because of the way that we fund research in this country, even conducting the study, apart from the problems with finding the appropriate study participants, but just running it from a scientist, from a grant funding, you know, from a social judgment point of view <laughs> is difficult. Yeah, exactly. So is there any expectation that the recent wave of legalization and the prospect of additional states joining in uh, will some of these problems start to be resolved? Well, though legalization will definitely help confront some of these challenges, it's almost certainly going to introduce some new issues and perhaps won't have much of an effect on some of them. For example, a major challenge in studying cannabis is the fact that potency varies so widely among different strains, and particularly among edible products like brownies or cookies and you know so on. A group at the University of Mississippi has measured that THC levels in weed have steadily increased in the U.S. from 2 to 3% in 1985, to around 5% in 2010 and found over 10% in some imported strains. Okay, so concentrations have more than doubled. Right, but those numbers don't corroborate the values measured by industry insiders. And I think most regular smokers would probably scoff at those percentages, perhaps expecting over 20% from premium strains. One strain called Girl Stout Cookies, which is kind of cute, <laughs> was measured to be close to 28%. Okay, so clearly a huge variance in the uh, potency. Right, and, and I have no idea how these industry people are measuring their potency, and if their techniques are worse or maybe even better than those that are being used at, uh, you know, by an academic institution that may not have changed their technology since the mid-80s. And couldn't there also be a bit of sales exaggeration going on here too? Like a seller might say that their Girl Scout cookie weed strain has a crazy high potency to appeal to smokers or mislabel things. That's definitely another problem. 
And so because of this poor standardization, it's really difficult to be entirely sure what kinds of concentrations we're talking about when we're trying to characterize the health outcomes of regular consumption, right? And then layer on top of that, the fact that cannabinoid concentrations in edibles vary so insanely widely. There was a survey uh, in 2014 done in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. And they found that only 17% of the edibles being sold had accurate THC concentration labels. Over 50% had less THC than claimed, and some had significantly more. And this is problematic for a variety of reasons, arguably the least of which is that it makes standardizing the health effects of regular edible consumption almost impossible. And of course, it's also hard to measure if someone bought an X amount of cannabis, you know, how they're ingesting it, you know, did they actually ingest all of it? If they're smoking, you know, what's the difference between one large puff and two small ones? Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I mean, someone who'd be just fine at a lower dose can have like panic attacks and psychosis and just have like an awful time on a massive and unexpected dose of cannabinoids, right? And then there's also the fact that your body metabolizes THC differently when eaten than when smoked. And we can talk about the biochemistry there next time. But another kind of ridiculous reality is that the weed you can get from NIDA, the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, um, for scientific experiments is apparently laughably less potent than the standard strains found in medical dispensaries or recreational stores in, you know, weed legal states. So one could argue that the studies using NIDA's weed, grown at the University of Mississippi, by the way, are studying a pharmacology that really isn't as relevant as it ought to be. So that's really strange, isn't it, that a university is growing pot for NIDA? I know, right? Yeah. And given the fact that, you know, while many people are familiar with the two most prominent psychoactive molecules in cannabis, THC and CBD, tetrahydrocannabinol and uh, cannabidiol, there are dozens of other molecules that some people still refer to as cannabinoids that may alter the effects of THC and CBD in very subtle ways, but ways that become very important for the treatment of specific conditions. And the concentration of these auxiliary cannabinoids will definitely vary according to growing techniques and strain genetics. So the idea that NIDA is still working with low-potency, outdoor-grown pot may be a bigger problem than it seems to be. Can you imagine being one of those people working on that, like, yeah. outdoor pot farm <laughs> decades ago, when the attitude towards weed wasn't as positive as it is today? It must have been so, like, really strange. I know, right? Yeah, and, and like, just imagine going for a walk through the woods, right, near the university, like, 20 years ago, and just stumbling onto this vast field of weed with big fences and probably barbed wire. It's like Stranger Things, but instead of aliens, it's just a big weed field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be awesome. It'd be a great idea for a TV show. And unfortunately, we'll have to leave you, our dear listeners, with the image of a massive field of government-funded, university-grown weed until we pick up next time with a deeper dive into what we know about how weed affects the body. 